thank you again, Stephen, for your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. So you've been in Kelowna for a few years. Tell us how you got here and why you made the decision to move here. Sure. Um, my wife, Laura Draycott, and I, we moved here uh, May 1st, 2011. And... We were living in Medicine Hat, Alberta, prior to our move. Um, now, I'm about as local as they come around Medicine Hat. There's five generations of my family that have lived and still live there. Uh, Laura, she was born in Hamilton, was raised in Calgary, and we had met in Medicine Hat from her previous life. And... She never wanted to stay in Medicine Hat. She was ready to move on. And when we first started seeing each other, she actually stuck around an extra two years for me, which is quite flattering, but I knew that this couldn't last. So we had discussed potentially moving to Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, White Rock, where her mom lived at the time, uh, even Ontario at one point. But... I had been coming to the Okanagan for 25, 30 years, something like that. And we had discussed this sort of uh, casually. And then one February, she says to me, I got to get out of this town. The winters are too cold. It's too small. We want to do something. I, I, or she wanted to do something else. And she had a relative here in Kelowna. And she said, I'm going to fly out there. And I'm either going to get it out of my system or I'll be moving. Right. And it was about a maybe 36 hours later. It was less than two days, certainly. She calls me back and says, I've been given a job offer and I put an offer in a house. Are you coming? <laughs> and I said, all right, let me get back to you. So we hang up. I call my, uh, at the time, um, well, I still work for Raymond James today, but I was in the Medicine Hat office, and we were managed out of Calgary. So I called my manager, and I said, um, I said, is it possible that I could get a transfer to the Kelowna branch? She said, just wait a second. She calls up the manager, uh, Paul Johnson, who was the manager at the time here in Kelowna, said, do you want Stephen? Can, can he move? Do you have space for him? And he said, absolutely, love to have him. Within... About 15 minutes of me calling my manager in Calgary, she had called me back and said, yeah, the office is waiting for you. Within a half hour of Laura telling me that she had put an offer in on a house, I had called her back and said, when do we move? So you had been dating about two years at this point. And did you live together in Medicine Hat? Yes, we did. And uh, did you have any questions about the house? I mean, was there any equivalent or you're just like, great. Just give me the address and I'll see you in a, in a few days. Well, it wasn't over a few days because we obviously had to put the house in Medicine Ad up for sale. Right. And, I mean, you're a real estate agent. You know how that process works. Um, but as far as me trusting Laura, as far as what she put an offer in, it was, the trust was implicit. Mm -hmm. And I'm not about to question her good judgment on something like that she has bought and sold more houses than I ever have and one of the criteria or th really the criteria for us moving here is that it the house had to have a view of some kind she had actually said that do you trust me and like 
yeah, I, I, I do, and I'll see it May 1st. I mean, that's, you know, to kind of skip over some of the boring details, you know, house goes up for sale, it gets sold. We know when our possession date, you know, is in, the house is actually in West Kelowna. We're packing up our house in Medicine Hat. You know, I'm driving the, the truck and trailer uh, through the mountains, and I know possession's May 1st. That's when I'm going to see it for the first time. And she said, you're just not going to believe it when you walk into this house. And it was, you know, it was built in the mid-90s, and, you know, it was somewhat dated. But Laura can see through that sort of thing. And you walk into the house, and the first thing that struck you were the were the Tweety Bird yellow walls. Mm-hmm. And then as you walk into the living room, you see this expansive 180-degree view of Okanagan Lake. And you just go, I'm home. That's awesome. So you work for Raymond James. Tell us how you got into this business. And uh, I understand you used to be in oil and gas before that. I definitely took the long road into... Uh, into becoming a financial advisor. Originally, I went to school. I majored in agricultural production. I grew up on a cattle ranch uh, south of Medicine Hat, and that cattle ranch has been in the family for generations. Uh, The Alberta government in 2009 gave my family our centennial plaque. Um, So that was my intention. I discovered, though, Working with my father, we got along better when we didn't work together, as is the case with many farming and ranching families. Sometimes you just have to realize that the relationship is more important than you know this perceived destiny that you're meant to be a thing. In this case, I grew up not even questioning the idea that I would be a cattle rancher. From there, I decided to move into Medicine Hat, and this was the early 90s. And when I was out at the ranch, I was working part-time for a friend of the family. He owned a, uh, a tank truck business, so I was driving truck. I was hauling uh, crude oil, and he had given me a referral to a company that no longer exists now called Nausco Well Service, and I got hired at an entry-level position And I was there at that company for eight years. I worked my way up in their cementing department. So what we would do, uh, we would go out to newly drilled uh, oil wells and cement the production casing, which is essentially a pipe and a hole, into that well. And we also did some oil and gas stimulation, low-level pressure pumping applications. Uh, uh, It's all rather technical. Um, But... I worked my way up to a field-trained engineer and supervisor. And at the time that I had left that that company, I I was one of the senior supervisors that had trained the majority of their supervisor corps at that time. There was me and probably about four other engineers-slash-supervisors at that time. And I was actually recruited out of the oil industry uh, by Edward Jones. And uh, I went through... Uh, the Edward Jones training program, they paid for my education. Uh, it was kind of like financial boot camp. You know, you had to hit certain milestones and certain criteria in order to progress. And if you had failed at any one point, you were essentially fired and, uh, you know, sent back to wherever you came from. Uh, 
And Edward Jones is known as a firm that doesn't necessarily hire people with financial background. They hire people of certain personality types. Uh, they have had a certain degree of success in their previous career, and they saw something in me. And I worked there for four years. And at that time, um, and I have you know good memories of Edward Jones, but I felt that my clients and my career and my business would have been be- would be better served at a different firm. And in this case, at this point, I had uh, moved to Raymond James, uh, and that was in 2008. So is it fair to say that um, you have to have skills of empathy and also math to be good at what you do? Yes, uh, to varying degrees. <laughs> um, I like to joke that sometimes uh, I can't do math because I'm a financial advisor. Of course, I'm being rather flippant at the, you know, it's trying to be, be cute uh, when I say that sort of thing. But yes, you, you do have to have, you know, a grasp of math. Um, you have to definitely have empathy and the ability to listen to people. A lot of times, what people say and what they mean isn't always the same thing. And it's not that they're trying to be purposefully uh, misleading. Sometimes they just don't know how to communicate or articulate what they want. So having listening skills is highly important. Um, And I was taught this by a mentor uh, many years ago. I'm a financial advisor now for 15 years, so I've I've been doing it a, a fair amount of time now. Um, but I remember one of my mentors always said, if you're talking more than the client, you're not doing them any service. You really have to stop, listen to what they say, and try and understand what they mean, and follow up with a lot of open-ended questions. And through that dialogue, you will help them understand what they are trying to accomplish, because sometimes you have to help define that for a client. So I've been with Raymond James Limited, the Canadian operations now for a little over 10 years. And then about, I'm actually employed by two different divisions of Raymond James. Raymond James Limited, which is our, as I had said previously, our Canadian operations, but I'm also dual licensed. I, um, uh, I hold my U.S. securities license. And I'm employed by a division called Raymond James USA Limited, which allows me to help uh, cross-border clients, uh, Americans living in Canada, Canadians living in the U.S., dual citizens, um, where you run into circumstances where the rules become somewhat cloudy because of uh, that joint jurisdiction. So I've... So my business, which I call Aura Wealth Management, under the banner of Raymond James, I've got my Canadian operations looking after you know uh, Canadian investors, and then the U.S. side, which is dual citizens and Americans. So you said that um, Raymond James was a better fit for you. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? What do you love about this company in contrast to others and the previous one you were at? I would say the biggest reason why I'm at Raymond James is their, not just their advisor support, which is excellent. And we have a very deep back office. We're a Fortune 500 company. A lot of people don't realize our company as a whole, Raymond James Financial, Raymond James Limited, um, all our subsidiaries, we actually manage more money than the Canadian banks combined. But it has a very 
small feel to it uh, that you wouldn't automatically assume given our size. Um, first off, Raymond James has contracts with every one of the financial advisors that work there that we own our business. Say, for example, I wanted to move my business to Dominion Securities, for example. Raymond James would actually help me do that. They wouldn't stand in my way. They wouldn't try to steal clients. Um, You do that the opposite way. It's much more difficult for, say, a bank-based financial advisor to leave and move their business to a a company like like Raymond James. You know, the, the bank considers that relationship their property, not that of the financial advisors, where the culture at Raymond James is the exact opposite. Um, So I have what I would consider true equity in my business, which matters a lot, especially if you've been building relationships and the size of your business over many years. Um, One of the other things that really matters to me is freedom of how I want to run my business. So again, uh, you will find at other firms, there tends to be an overarching corporate culture. And, you know, it's a, it's a legitimate way of doing business, but that's not necessarily the way I want to do business. I don't necessarily fall easily into a category. So when I designed Oro Wealth Management under the banner of Raymond James, it was very specific. I have a specific way of doing client reviews, of making sure that their investments are appropriate, risk assessment, uh, estate planning, tax efficiency. That process is very specific to Oro Wealth. And by contrast, you could have another Raymond James advisor in the office next to me who may not do holistic financial planning as I do, but they may be more of a traditional stockbroker. Or you may have an advisor who does nothing but life insurance. Or maybe they only do wealth management in the sense that they only manage their uh, that client's investments. And they're all legitimate ways of doing business, but it the, the firm allows that freedom to, to design that. The firm is there to help uh, run your business and to give compliance oversight, to help with research, and to basically facilitate the way you want to run your business. And it's, uh, it's a great environment. It's, it's one of those corporations that has... I, I like to say that the corporate culture is that there is none. You get to define it for yourself, which is very nice. I want to ask you about the United States part of the business. I lived there in the past. I worked there for a couple of years in the late 1990s. Uh, I've taken dozens of vacations there. Love the United States. I'm a student of American history, American politics. Um, Canadian born, of course, but uh, I always find stories like this interesting where people are dealing on both sides of the border. How did you get into the American side of your business? It was purely by accident on my part. Um, The firm actually approached me and asked me if I would be willing to get my U.S. license. Um, The U.S. uh, division of Raymond James, uh, the CEO had uh, approached me, I believe it was about five years ago now, uh, asked me if if I'd be willing to, to, you know, take the courses and get certified and get licensed. And I took a look at uh, at the work involved, but the opportunity was 
potentially quite uh, quite rewarding. And I said yes. So that's generally how it happened. It wasn't something that I was looking for, but uh, it was an opportunity offered. And sometimes you uh, sometimes you have to say yes and worry about the details later, <laughs> and uh, and and hope that you're smart enough to uh, to make it through, which. Right. Uh, which some, sometimes can be a little intimidating, um, but I'm I'm actually a student of U.S. history and politics, and and I, I'm a fan of the U.S. as well. So it was it was very interesting going through the schooling and the licensing aspect, as well as now being a practicing American financial advisor, to see the differences between the two countries. Um, one obvious difference, especially when you're dealing with cross-border issues, is how our two respective countries tax each other, um, which is why cross-border investing, cross-border financial planning, cross-border taxation is so confusing. Um, Canadians, like most Western democratic nations, tax based on residency. But that's not the case with the United States. They tax based on, on your citizenship. So it doesn't matter if you're an American citizen living in Australia, you are still subject to the IRS. Whereas if you're a Canadian living in Australia, you may still have to, you know, uh, you know, submit your uh, your tax forms to the CRA, but you may not owe any tax because the money wasn't made here in Canada. Now, I'm grossly simplifying the situation. There's nuance and rules, and then there are rules on top of the rules which is why whenever I sit down with a, an American uh, living in Canada or a Canadian living down south or, or dual citizen, um, you encourage them to be patient because you just never know what you may uncover as you start going down that rabbit hole. So I want to make sure that yeah. anybody who's listening knows that I'm simplifying a lot just for the purposes of, of this conversation. Give us your sense of the current state of the Canadian economy and the American economy, and then the two connected as it pertains to NAFTA and the negotiations that are happening right now. What is your sense? My sense of it, and I'm not in your field, um, is that the U.S. economy is quite strong right now, and the Canadian economy is a little bit weaker. But I'm sure you have a lot more insight than I would on that topic. Your general feeling is, I, I would consider that correct. I would say that the Canadian economy is weaker in relation to the U.S. economy, but that's not to imply that we're suffering necessarily. Um, there's been some economic data come out from, from Ottawa that shows that things are quite good. However, I always take those quarterly numbers with a grain of salt because they can they can swing wildly depending on price of commodities, current state of your currency, NAFTA negotiations, any number of things. Um, the U.S. economy, in spite of its government, is actually doing quite well. Some could make the same argument for Canada. Um, I'm not going to debate politics here, but, uh, <laughs> but I've found in over the years, um, you know, doing what I do, I have a, uh, a market information piece that I send out to my clients every quarter along with their portfolio reviews. And in the past, you wouldn't have to edit it nearly as much as you have to now. 
to make sure that it's timely and relevant. Now, you're not going to, it's not a, a news ticker, this piece, but there are some days I feel that I could delete the entire thing and rewrite it just based on the news cycle. Um, you go back a few weeks, it was all about the potential trade war between the United States and Europe. That seems to have cooled at this point. You go back a few weeks prior to that, the news cycle was, majority of, of it was about NAFTA, if we're just discussing economics. Um, now it's about the U.S. and the China trade relationship. Um, you're starting to hear more about NAFTA again. Um, it, so things happen and change very quickly. I would say that we've, seen an, we've certainly seen an injection of volatility back into the investment market. Some of that is self-inflicted and some of it is not. Do you have any sense of uh, our British Columbia situation with this speculation tax? Uh, I believe the current government holds a one-seat majority and it's a coalition so just based on my knowledge of history, there's always a chance that one or two people are going to stand up and say, my constituents uh, scream at me every time I go into a coffee shop, and I'm not voting for this thing. You can stick it. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think it's going to pass in September? That is a loaded question. <laughs> Honestly, at this point, and, and I'm not trying to be... Uh, I'm not trying to dodge the question, and I, and I will give my opinion... But I'm going to kind of lead up to that. So generally, when you're obviously in a, uh, and I don't, you know, I have to be careful. I'm not a political scientist by any means. But in my experience, when you when you're in a minority government situation like this, you could see minority governments fall at any time. Um, and when not even the party in power, you know, is really controlling potential of how this vote will go it's hard to say i i'm i'm going to suspect that it will likely pass and whenever you have a change in government you could possibly see it go away depending on you know for argument's sake say the liberals came into power the next time we have a provincial election any political party at their heart is pragmatic. They will look at it and say, well, we're making a lot of money here. Yeah, we may have promised we'll get rid of it, but there's just too much revenue you know, being generated. You know, that's a distinct possibility. Although, to your point, if you have enough uh, voters and taxpayers yelling at you, you're going to go back to your party and say, um, I'm done being yelled at. <laughs> so um, what kind of impact that's going to have on the, uh, on the BC economy I'm going to say it's very difficult to say at this point, I think, and you'll probably see this more than I would, uh, you know, a reduction in home sales, um, certainly a reduction in second home sales, obviously. Um, And anytime, anytime you inject uncertainty into any market, you're going to inject volatility and price weakness. Um, You see that in the stock market. You see that in the real estate market, um, that's just a, that's just the nature of markets. I totally agree, and that's the feedback I'm getting from Alberta clients and Vancouver clients. Um, I had a couple who own a vacation home here, and they say uh, they can afford this tax, but they're they're pissed off about it. 
and uh, they don't feel like the government really wants them here. And um, they were going to make a a third purchase, so a third home, because they've got a huge family in Calgary, and they love vacationing here, but they're going to wait. And it's not a question of being able to afford it, it's the uncertainty, Mm -hmm. right? And um, uncertainty also affects investors because we think, well, maybe prices are going to drop. I'm just going to wait and see what happens. So uncertainty is really bad. We saw that last year with the uh, with the federal government when they had their uh, proposed changes to uh, corporate taxes on small businesses. Um, just in my, albeit admittedly small circle, you know, compared to the greater economy and the greater population, I knew of at least uh, $10 million that was parked, that was earmarked for investment. Not... I'm not talking about the stock market. I'm talking about investment back into small business, back into either opening up an a business, another business, or reinvestment back into their own business. And uh, the federal government, after you know a fair amount of pressure was applied, you know, came to the realization that you can't do something like that. So far, I don't think the BC government has. I don't think they've felt that kind of pressure yet. You know, certainly not on the scale that the federal government felt when uh, the business tax changes were proposed. Um, they may not feel that pressure until the next election. You know, it's it's always difficult to tell. But anytime you inject uncertainty, you will see money parked because you can't ask someone who's going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars and in some cases millions of dollars into property or a business or anything like that to... Uh, ask them to, to risk their, their capital or their life savings to do something like that. That's where a lot of good forward planning certainly helps, you know, with their accountants, their lawyers, their financial advisors. But there's only so much planning you can do for the, un, for, for the unforeseen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the current B.C. government wants Albertans to come here because they want their tax revenue from the purchase of a, of a second property. So um, the motivation, I think, is clear. It's money, not necessarily trying to scare people away, although it's having the opposite effect, I would argue. Are most of your clients Canadians with American investments, or do you have a lot of American clients with Canadian investments, or is it kind of equal? Well, it depends on how you define that. So my Canadian clients, who are just Canadian, live in Canada, you know, have their traditional RRSPs and TFSAs full stop. It's it's a blend of Canadian, U.S., and global equities. You know, if we're just talking about the stock market, uh, you know, portfolio construction, if that's what you're asking, is dependent on suitability, risk tolerance, you know, life stage of a client. And that is fairly universal from that standpoint, regardless if they're a Canadian or an American or a dual citizen. Um, If you're asking how many of my clients are Canadian versus the U.S. operations, what I would classify as the U.S. operations, I would say about 70% of uh, my clients and their assets are Canadian. And then about 30% of Aura Wealth Management's operations is the dual citizen's the American side. So you've been in Kelowna about seven years, a little over seven years. 
Uh, tell us what you love about it and tell us what surprised you the most. Well, I don't know where to begin about what I love about Kelowna, but I can tell you with absolute certainty that it has become home. Like it is, I mean, there's the obvious stuff that we all enjoy here from the weather to all the activities and everything, you know, the wine, the restaurants, um, you know, all the different organizations that are here. Um, What surprised me is how accepting and inclusive this community is. Because when we first started telling people that we were moving, they, we got, you know, sort of this, you know, this warning, you know, clone is pretty clicky. You know, you may have a hard time. Yeah. You may have a hard time breaking through. And we did not experience that at all from people who have lived here for many years uh, to the people that have, you know, had just moved here. Everybody was so welcoming and inclusive and made sure that, well, you have to meet this person or you have to go experience this, you know, People really wanted you to feel that you were part of the community, and and we really have. Um, Laura and I have made some wonderful friends here, and every day we wake up and we're just astonished at who we know and who we've met and what we've experienced since moving here. So if someone wants to find out about your services, what's the best way to get in touch with you? They can go to my website, orawealthmanagement.ca. Aura is spelled A-U-R-A, wealth management. Actually, the name Aura came from, uh, I, I was trying to figure out a name for my business, and I, I was racking my brain forever, and uh, I realized that I I just named it after my wife. And I dropped the L off of Laura, and now it became Aura Wealth Management. Nice. And it, it invoked this uh, this feeling of security and calmness, which isn't always... Uh, an emotion that you feel when you're investing or dealing with estate plans, but uh, it uh, it became very personal for me. But that that's how you find us. Uh, you know, a quick Google search of of me or of Oral Wealth Management is uh, you, you'll find us. Our offices are in uh, Landmark One on, on the fifth bill uh, on the fifth floor. Pardon me. I don't do any conventional advertising. Uh, what I try to do to get my name and oral wealth management's name out there is to uh is to do charitable work um i'm one of the sponsors of the red dress event for uh for the heart and stroke foundation uh i'm a sponsor and a supporter of opera Kelowna. i'm a member of the west Kelowna daybreak uh rotary club um and you know to, to smaller degrees other charities as well but I think it's very important that if you're going to be a part of the community to try and give back because Kelowna has really been good to uh, Laura and I. So uh, that's one of the ways that I try to be noticed and to be found. So who would you like to nominate someone in Kelowna that you find to be a fascinating person and you would love to see come on the show in the future? I believe uh, when we did this last time, uh, I, I said I was going to cheat and give you two names. Perfect. And uh, Cheryl uh, Gillespie of Rock House Style, um, she's, uh, she's one of my best friends. I absolutely love her. She is absolutely fascinating. I mean, the stories that she could tell, 
you'll you, you'll find out. I, I mean, she, uh, Laura, and I have really come to uh, care a great deal about uh, about Cher, and uh, she would be a very interesting person to talk to. And I would also like to uh, to recommend Camille Saltman. Um, we've only known uh, Camille and her husband David uh, for a relatively short period of time, maybe maybe six months. But we've uh, grown very close with with her and them as well. And as far as Camille is concerned, I, I wish I had an eighth of her CV because extraordinarily accomplished. Uh, well, um, what doesn't she do? You know something? I am going to let you have that conversation because she was involved in tech in, uh, in San Diego. Uh, she was a CEO of, of a company, a number of companies. She is currently working with UBCO, their critical studies uh, department. So um, there, there's lots there to, uh, to talk to her about. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for those nominations. There's so many great people in this city, and uh, Cheryl is actually booked for tomorrow. Stephen, thank you so much for your time today, and hope to see you soon. Thank you very much, Luke. I enjoyed it a lot.